what's going on guys welcome to or welcome back to consuming crime it's your host jules here hello before we get started make sure you check out the website consumingcrime.com and also the facebook page i'm just jumping right into this hoping that i remember every single announcement um we are over 300 likes on facebook it'd be cool to get to 400 so go ahead and hit that like button when you get to facebook Back to the website though, let's circle back to that. If you would like to become, oh, that was really loud in my ears. I don't know if you guys heard that. Head over to consumingcrime.com, hit the become a patron button. That's gonna take you over to Consuming Crime's Patreon account where you can get two bonus episodes a month for $5 a month and that will make you a certified crime consumer. You can also hit the devoted crime consumer at $10 a month which gets you the bonus episodes plus regular content ad free Uh, i don't know about you guys but i don't like ads at all every time someone's like oh you can use my hulu account i'm like oh oh that's very nice of you do you have ads though like i'm just i'm spoiled like i can afford it other than that i want to give a special shout out to the sponsor of today's episode which is audible audible is the pretty sure it's like the leading website platform for audiobooks i don't know if you guys like to learn out there i like to learn but i don't like to read so audible is perfect because i can learn and i don't have to read uh right now i'm listening to the fifth agreement which is like an extension of the four agreements that i actually have right here hold on so this is the first one this is the four agreements which i also have in audio format and right now i'm listening to the fifth agreement it's really really good i strongly recommend you guys listen to it go ahead and head over to audibletrial.com slash consuming crime and you will get a free trial on consuming crime again that is audibletrial.com slash consuming crime i wonder if i'll make it through this entire recording with my nails still on look at my nails you guys i don't know if you guys can see if you're on spotify or youtube like look at how freaking pretty my nails are otherwise you're missing out you should go to spotify or youtube um they've been popping off all day like i think it was mostly the thumbs that were coming off i don't know it was driving me crazy and also guys check out my youtube channel if you haven't already i just like revamped all of the well like 10 of the thumbnails and i think it looks really cool i think it looks like more clickable like now i'd i would want to click on my own videos whereas before i was like i don't really want to watch that and i'm talking about myself too so we are continuing to cover homicide hunter with joe kenda and today's episode is called drive Through murder it has the same name on discovery plus and again all of these episodes are available on discovery plus someday i want to meet him i really do i think it would be so cool to like if the podcast like blows up or whatever and i get like famous or whatever i think it'd be cool to have uh lieutenant joe kenda on my podcast so again all of these episodes take place in colorado springs colorado Remember, Joe Kenda is lieutenant of the Homicide Department, so they're all going to be here. On September 17th, 1994, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, it is a Friday night, and this episode starts off following 18-year-old Gabriel Burns. He was walking home from a friend's party when he heard commotion over a nearby hill. There was a gunshot, and he thought it was a backfire, so he didn't think anything of it. A backfire. A backfire like a car? I wonder what he meant by that. Maybe he just didn't think it was a gunshot. As he turns the corner, he sees a car with its emergency lights on at the intersection. At first, he figured they were looking at maps. Like, maybe they were on their phone looking at GPS trying to figure out, like, where to go next. I do that sometimes. He slowly walks over, and he notices glass on the ground next to the driver's side. 
this point, Gabriel, you should probably run the other direction. In the driver's seat, okay, look at that. I was just messing with my cat and that's what I get. I just lost my freaking thumbnail again. He slowly walks over and notices glass on the ground next to the driver's side. In the driver's seat is a woman who appeared to be passed out. When he got closer, he could immediately tell that she had been shot. Gabriel sprints down the street to the nearest house, pounds on their door in an effort to wake someone up and have them call 911. He is successful and officers are dispatched to the scene. Lieutenant Joe Kenda arrives on the scene and he knows this area very well. It's an upper middle class area where he actually used to live. Okay, alright. This neighborhood is rarely visited by the major crimes unit. Lieutenant Kenda takes his first look at the crime scene. The window had been broken from the inside. Most of the pieces were on the outside of the car. That's how they could tell. The woman has a single entry gunshot wound one and a half inches below her right eye and an exit wound on the left back of her head. Oh my gosh. So somebody must have shot her from inside of the car. The bullet is what broke the window. The car engine was running, set to drive. This means her foot was still putting pressure on the brake. That is so crazy to me. Her foot was still pressing on the brake, which is insane. Kenda reaches over and turns off the ignition. The victim is a white female in her 30s. Her uniform is of a fast food restaurant. Her name tag says Missy Berry. Underneath it says assistant manager. Is this an angry customer? Did somebody get pissed off because their order wasn't right? Based on the way she looked, she had been dead for at least an hour. What interests Kenda the most is how relaxed her body is, as it just said she wasn't relaxed. He isn't thinking she was startled at the time of her death. He's thinking someone she knew was with her, and she also knew that they, they had a gun. And maybe she just didn't think they would point it at her? Okay, maybe somebody you trust, let's go with that. He looks at the wound on her cheek and tries to get an estimate on the range. It looks like she had been shot at close range. He lets the forensic team take over and perform a sweep of the scene to gather any necessary evidence. One of the guys calls Kenda over to show him a potential key piece of evidence. An expended 9mm casing under the passenger seat. I always write it exactly how the documentary has it and I never know what it means. I think expended means like used. I mean, I would. that's like my only guess. 9mm, I don't know, like a measurement of something. I don't know. Anyway, they found that underneath the passenger seat. Lieutenant Kenda says that automatic pistols eject to the right and forward. Whoever shot her must have done it from the inside of the car. They could not find a wallet, a purse, an ID, nothing. They ran a listing on the car and it matched the victim, Missy Berry. The address listed for the car registration is not near where she had been killed though. She had been driving the opposite way of where she lived. So that could be very telling. Lieutenant Kenda very dramatically says she was 15 whole miles away from 1.30 in the morning. This is very strange to him. It's not really that <laughs> strange to be only 15 miles. Officers get in contact with the general manager of the restaurant she worked at, Ruth Ludwig. They go speak to her at the restaurant. They inform her of Missy's death and that she was shot in her car. Ruth could not understand why anyone would want to hurt her. Do I have to say it? Everybody has an enemy? Am I going to have to keep saying it? Yeah, everyone has an enemy. Her and Missy were very close. She described Missy as someone that would do anything for anybody. Detectives ask her, do you know anyone that has been having problems with Missy? And she says, oh yeah. What? Didn't you just say you cannot imagine anybody wanting to hurt her? I, <laughs> oh my goodness, what's going on? She said, there's a policeman. 
The narrator goes on to say some officers would have a problem investigating a fellow officer in a homicide investigation. We know. But not Kenda. She names a Tom White. Missy had been in an accident recently, and Officer White was giving her complications with the insurance company. He had mishandled the report as well, according to Missy. Missy had filed a complaint against him, and he was terminated from the department for a complaint? Okay, this dude must have, like, a track record of being complained about or something. There's no way he had been fired just from being complained on once. So, yeah, absolutely not. We're going to call this guy Tom, because he got fired. So he's not Officer Tom, obviously. Tom called Missy's place of employment and kept bugging her, telling her she was the reason he lost his job. Come on, dude. His ego, dude. Check it. He had also called another restaurant location and asked if anyone knew her home address. What is wrong with you? Dude, get a li- or get another job. Ruth told her, hey, if he keeps this up, you need to get a restraining order. One day, he showed up to her job as she was leaving, and he asked where she was going, and she was like, none of your business. And he goes, okay, well, we're just going to straighten this out now. He tells her, you cost me my job. I'll get you for this, you bitch. Oh my god, Thomas. Her complaint is not the reason you lost your job. And I'm starting to see maybe why you did lose your job. Lieutenant Kenda is thinking this guy has the means and is equipped to commit murder. The standard issued gun of the police department matches the casing found on the scene. But, okay, no, 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 but that doesn't make sense because wouldn't he not be that stupid? I mean, Tom sounds like an absolute idiot, but I don't think he's stupid enough to shoot somebody with his own gun issued by the department. Not to mention, when you're fired from the police department, don't they take your gun? I don't know. These are just questions that I have. Detectives begin looking into Tom. They were able to confirm that he was not even in the state at the time of the murder. They focus their attention now on Missy's co-worker, Julie Halstead. She is an an 18-year-old senior in high school. She was the last person in contact with the victim. She lived in the same neighborhood where Missy was found. Okay, so now we're like, did they carpool together? Like, maybe they were together. Detectives informed Julie that Missy had been killed. When talking about Missy, however, Julie accounted of her very differently than the way Ruth did. She said she can be abrasive, she teases people, she does things that people can find offensive. Just not the best type of manager. Julie, girl, spilling tea. She accounts that they both clocked out that night at 12.34 in the morning. Missy was found at 1.30 a.m. Julie said she went home right after work, getting there around 1. Her cell phone records agree with this timeline. Detectives decide to leave her alone for now. It's just interesting that Ruth is saying, I can't imagine anybody would want to hurt her, but she's like, she's also aware that her assistant manager is like kind of a bully. Julie also tells officers that every night Missy is supposed to take the day's receipts and cash to the bank. The night of the murder, Missy took $1,000 to the bank. Oh, this is probably where she was. They needed to check the surveillance footage of the bank to see if she had gotten a chance to deposit the money. They go to the bank and they have no record of the deposit, nor do they have any footage of her. When looking at the footage, they don't see her car from midnight all the way until four in the morning. She never got to the bank. They know now that the shooter has almost $1,000 in cash because remember, they didn't find anything in her car and they would have found that. This could be the motive, but this doesn't bring him to who did it. 
One officer approaches Lieutenant Kenda and lets him know that on the night of the murder, he received a burglary call that had been canceled and while, while he was on the way over, this was before he received the call of the murder. On the way back from receiving this call, it was canceled. Wait, what? Hold on. Someone's trying to rob you and then you call and say, never mind. Who do you call to say, never mind? 911 again? On the way back from receiving this call, he sees the restaurant. This was before knowing of the victim. Oh, this was before he received the call of the murder. So this was probably like 12.30, 12.45. Remember, Missy clocked out at 12.30 and then they found her body at 1.30. So it was like an hour. Really? This is, wow, it's almost like the cops were like right there. There was a suspicious looking man lingering around. He was a white male, anywhere from 16 to 19 years old, thin faced, tall, and wearing a baseball cap or a ball cap. Is that the same thing? He was also in the same uniform as the restaurant workers. Okay, so he worked there. <laughs> Why not just say it looked like he worked there? He tells the officers, I'm just waiting for a friend. Missy comes out and she offers him a ride home and they went off. So this officer did see Missy alive and leave with somebody. Lieutenant Kenda calls Ruth at the restaurant and asks about the man. And Ruth says, oh yeah, and his name is Darren Haney. He's 19, blonde, kind of thin, and always wears a ball cap. Ruth, being interviewed now, is saying, when they asked who I thought did it, I thought of Darren Haney, and he was into drugs. So, okay, it's possible that he did the money for drugs, but what kind of drugs? Was he just like a pot smoker? Because usually people that smoke weed don't tend to kill for it. He does not have a stable life and he is often living with whoever will put up with him at the time. That sucks. When they go to track him down, they find him in an unlikely place, the Air Force Academy Hospital. Right off the bat, he does not seem to be a drug degenerate the way Ruth described. Yeah, I think Ruth, Ruth's uh, memory of people is a little funky uh, from what I can tell. He gives police an alibi and it's airtight. He had been at the hospital all night because his wife was having a baby. Isn't he like 19 years old? Okay. But he does tell him of an employee that did have it out for Missy. His name is George Clifford McDaniel. <laughs> <coughs> that is a hell of a name, dude. I guess everybody calls him Cliff. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Let's call him Cliff because that's a lot. Missy would bully him constantly and this would infuriate him. He's 22 years old. He has said in the past that he wants to see that bitch dead. Okay, Cliff, chill out, dude. He was always the main subject of Missy's ridicule. Ruth accounts that there were times that Cliff's mom would call and remind him to wear a jacket and Missy would tease him about this. You know what? I'm gonna tell you right now. If anybody killed her for being a bad manager, that's ridiculous. Do you, do you know how many terrible managers I've had in my life? One of them in particular, it was like the biggest bully. And I'm telling you, like now that I'm older, because I was 18 when I worked where I worked. Now that I'm older looking back, she wasn't trying to help. She was just a bitch. Like, seriously, seriously. And like... I really can tell you throughout my whole 24 years of life, I've never met somebody so mean. But at the same time, I don't want her to die. Like, that's really morbid. If anything, I hope that she's, like, grown up now. It's been six years. Shout out to Jules. I just called her by name. I don't give a shit. Like, hope you're all good now, but you were a bitch. But I don't want you dead. I'm, I don't want you dead. My whole point is, 
I hope it's not somebody wanting to kill her because she's a bad manager. Because newsflash, they're everywhere. Oh, we have the same nickname. Kind of cute. Cliff lives one block away from where her car was found. Oh, no, dude. The officer that accounted for a guy getting into Missy's car earlier is now saying that Cliff looks like the guy he saw, not Darren. Okay. Kenda goes into the restaurant to find Cliff and he's there working. He tells him, we're going to need you at the station to answer some questions. Cliff replies, I perfectly understand. My father was a military cop. I know how these things go. Okay. When interviewing him, he does not seem like the murdering type. He was born in England. Oh my god. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. It's just like, I just imagine. Let me do that again. Hold on. Cliff replies, I perfectly understand. My father was was a military cop i know how these things go <laughs> that was like so bad i'm sorry uh i have to talk like that now that i know he's from england and he has an accent i have to he was born in england his mother married an army man and he himself served for two years oh cliff served cool cliff is described as friendly cooperative helpful and he's really trying to get out as much info as possible nothing about him is giving off bad vibes the only thing that stuck out was when he spoke about his home life he said he was living with his parents and money was a problem. He had been giving them a good portion of his paychecks. They asked him about the night in question, his whereabouts. He said, to my friend Ronnie Houston's house that night, we watched a movie called Man's Best Friend. I'm about to get like a smack in the face reality check on how bad my accent is when I listen to this back watch. Shortly after one in the morning, the movie ended and I walked home. Nothing alarmed officers until towards the end of the interview when Cliff makes a shocking statement. I'm sure she gave somebody a ride home. They probably did it. Quite the statement, Clifford. <laughs> I'm so annoying. I'm sorry. Officers take him back to work, and in order to check out Cliff's story, Kenda heads over to Ronnie's house. They tell him, he told us he was with you at 9.30 on this night. Is that true? He said, yeah, that's right. He was here. They ask, did you guys watch TV that night? Did you guys rent a movie? Anything like that? And he goes, nope, none of that. Lieutenant Kenda looks at him and says, have you ever seen a movie called A Man's Best Friend? And he said, I have never heard of that movie. This Cliffy has some explaining to do. What time did he leave? Well, I got a phone call from a girl, was talking to her for a while, and at around 11 or 11.30, Cliff left. Ronnie is spilling all of the beans. A week before, he was playing basketball with his friend when Cliff pulls up in his mom's car. He calls them over, he walks out and shows them a gun. He points the gun at one of the guys and pulls the trigger. Like an asshole, but there's nothing, there's no magazine, so it doesn't go off. He tells the guys he's going to use the gun to rob the restaurant. Damn, Ronnie, like that? I mean, thank you for spilling all of this, but like that? That night, he must have gone to the restaurant, asked Missy for a ride, waited until he was only a block away from home, shot Missy, and took the money. They now have enough to arrest Cliff. They go to, but wait, hold on, but hold on. It's not, it's not going to end right here, you guys. Wait for it. They go to his house. It's three in the morning. They wake everybody up. Cliff is not home, but they have a warrant for the home so they can search. They didn't find anything, no bank bag, money, gun, nothing. They tell his parents that their son is a prime suspect in a murder case. And his parents tell them he's in London. Officers, can I, I'm not, let me just point out. 
In the documentary, I think it's very funny that his mother is from England and the actress playing her has a has an English, like an American accent. They should have just hired me. I would have faked the accent perfectly. Officers immediately get to work on finding him. How are they going to do this? I'm even curious, honestly. They find the travel agent that arranged the one-way ticket to London. It had been paid in cash. According to her, he told her... Um, that he was going to London because his aunt had passed away. It is clear to Lieutenant Kenda that he is running away. This was Kenda's first time having to drag somebody back into his jurisdiction from another country. That is insane. They contacted New Scotland Yard, spoke with their fugitive division, and they said they'd take it from there. It did not take long to find him. He was staying with his aunt, who was very much alive. Thank you. It gets a little bit tricky, however. Officers in England will not send Cliff back to the U.S. until Lieutenant Kenda and his team testify that they will not pursue the death penalty. So, now, Lieutenant Kenda has to talk to one of his most trusted detectives. And he asks him, do you have a passport? He says yes. So, Lieutenant Kenda tells him to go to England and bring me Cliff McDaniel. The U.S. Department of State prepares a document with the U.S. seal on it. Detective Freeman brings this to the British court as testimony of what Clifford has done in the States. The British judge agrees of Clifford being responsible, so he signs an international extradition warrant. Cliff is then brought back to the States in shackles. You guys. In basically in summary, that's I mean, I don't know, I'm sure it's different like each country, but I was even thinking like shit, like a lot of things change. And sometimes it's almost impossible because of jurisdiction. Like, that's such an important word. And I feel like people often get a away with things because there's, like, that block of jurisdiction and, like, people don't want to do the work or they do. They just don't know how. So kudos to Lieutenant Joe Kenda because he admitted this was the first time dealing with international and he handled it, handled it very well. The money and the murder weapon was never discovered. Clifford McDaniel was found guilty on one count of first-degree murder, and he is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which is where he is still today. I put a picture of him. He does not look 19. He looks British, though. <laughs> Jeez, I'm not used to recording this late. Um, there's this wonderful site called findagrave.com and a lot of these victims you can go and leave them like a digital flower i think that's really sweet missy has one and her name i don't i don't know how to pronounce this marchell marchell m-a-r-c-h-e-l faye missy berry born january 3rd 1962 and passed away september 17th 1984 at 32 that is it for today's episode guys <sighs> Thank you for consuming crime with me today, and you will hear me next week. And a happy holidays.